the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice uh, has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. We'll talk about, he's, by the way, a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a FDA-authorized rapid home test for COVID-19. Well, how accurate is it? How do you implement it? When's it going to be available? We'll talk about all of that when he joins us at the top of the next hour. We'll also share a classic interview with Mark David Hall. Did America have a Christian founding separating modern myth from historical truth? That's coming also in the second hour of today's program. Looking at some of the day's headlines, governors throughout the country have reinstated safety precautions in recent weeks to try to combat the rapid spike in coronavirus cases weeks before large family gatherings and holiday getaway trips are slated to take place. More than 11 million cases have been reported in the U.S. since COVID-19 started as Americans prepare to observe upcoming holidays. Well, the holidays drew even more concern among public officials who fear large gatherings could exacerbate the current health situation across the country. The situation has never been more dire. That's a quote from Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. She's up for impeachment, by the way. Various governors have enacted extensive measures from halting in-person classes to limiting indoor and outdoor dining operations. We'll talk more specifically about what's happening here in Oregon in a few moments. In other uh, developments, photos emerged of Governor Newsom inside a posh restaurant with the coronavirus spikes and ongoing lectures to California residents. The good news is those at the very top of the heap do not have uh, have to have the rules applied to them. So apparently there is a an economic implication to COVID-19 as well as a political bent. So if you're in the right political frame of mind and you're considered one of the elite, um, then apparently COVID-19 is of no concern to you. For the rest of us, however, stay locked down. Have too many people over the for Thanksgiving here in Oregon and you can go to jail. But no sweat if you want to engage in a riot. Well, the Michigan restaurant group is suing the health department over indoor dining restrictions. And Delaware's Democratic governor is imposing new COVID restrictions, including what you can do in your home. Governor Cuomo is blaming drug companies and the president for a speedy COVID-19 vaccines. Blaming them is the operative word. Ohio's governor has issued a 21-day curfew to combat COVID, and more Americans now say that they would get the coronavirus vaccine amid rising infections. They might have been reluctant before. Well, CNN admits that Moderna's promising vaccine development is an unmitigated success for Donald Trump. They were a part of Operation Warp Speed. Well, Michigan's Wayne County certifies their election results in a reversal of an earlier decision. Election officials there in the Michigan's largest county voted to certify election results on Tuesday night, ending a short-lived deadlock that could have delayed the state from confirming a victory for President-elect Joe Biden. 
presumed president-elect. Well, the Wayne County Board of Canvassers voted 4-0 to zero to certify the results. As part of the agreement, the board, which consists of two Republicans and two Democrats, asked Michigan Secretary of State Joyce Lynn Benson to audit the election process and pursue reforms to prevent discrepancies in the future, according to local reports. The reversal came just hours after a previous vote resulted in a 2-2 two to two deadlock along party lines. Republicans who initially voted against certification cited concerns related to absentee poll books in certain Detroit area precincts that did not match. Had the county's certification vote failed, state canvassers would have been tasked with certifying election results. The initial results stoked outrage among Democratic officials, including Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, as well as praise from Republicans in support of Mr. Trump's ongoing challenge of the election results. Well, the board met after days of unsuccessful litigation filed by Republican poll challengers and Trump allies. They claimed fraud during absentee ballot counting at a Detroit convention center, but two judges found no evidence and refused to stop the canvassing process. Earlier in the day on Tuesday, Trump campaign attorney Jenna Ellis touted the Wayne County Board of Canvassers' failure to certify the vote as a huge win for the president. Trump's campaign has alleged election fraud and filed legal challenges over results in several states, as you know. The president's team has yet to react to the Wayne County Board of Canvassers' reversal. And other developments, Michigan's Wayne County certification deadlock has led to unanimous certification, and Georgia is investing, investigating rather vote counting delays by flooding in one Democratic county. Senator Kennedy says the media's disparate treatment of Biden and Trump will undermine our democracy. And as the U.S. Senate may be 50-50, Senators Lott and Daschle say trust and respect will be key to their 2000 power share. Well, good luck with that. I hope it happens. Senator Graham is pushing back on accusations he pressured Georgia to throw out legal ballots. And Trump has fired the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director, Chris Krebs, uh, claiming statements on the election security was highly inaccurate. The president fired the top U.S. cybersecurity official on Tuesday, days after the agency led uh, Agency Krebs led issued a statement that categorically rejected Trump's campaign's allegations of voter fraud. Trump's campaign uh, losses in Pennsylvania due to the Supreme Court challenge to Philadelphia election observers was something of a blow. And the New York Times previously sounded the alarm on how easily electronic voting machines can be hacked. Now, not so much. Dan Gaynor says Twitter and Facebook were a big part of the takedown efforts against Donald Trump in the 2020 election. And Latino voters supported Trump out of fear of Democratic socialists. Uh, CNN pundit is irked that colleagues or rather irked his colleagues by pointing out the hypocrisy between coverage of Stacey Abrams and Donald Trump. Neither have uh, accepted the outcome of the election. Biden started staffing up with senior White House announcements and Biden's COVID advisors are stressing there's no time to waste on a coronavirus transition. Vice President Pence spokesperson debunked the Huffington Post reporter who claimed the vice president and wife Karen, the second lady, didn't wear masks at the SpaceX launch. And a squad lawmaker has praised former Communist Party member Angela Davis. Parler CEO says the platform serves as a community town square. And 87-year-old longest-serving Republican Senator Chuck Grassley has tested positive for COVID-19. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick, he uh, calls for the release of convicted cop killer Mumia Abu-Jamal 
saying free mamui. Uh, and Harvard students are seeking to censor conservative speakers on campus. Mark Zuckerberg has confirmed that Facebook won't ban people who call for murder. And Mississippi may soon join a handful of states without income taxes. The CEO of the country's largest employer is ready to work with Biden in Congress. And Listerine says it's not clinically proven to fight COVID-19. You might recall a report about a week ago saying that there was some evidence that it might have an impact. Well, some Walmart stores are seeing shortages of toilet paper and cleaning supplies coming to a grocery store near you. Well, Democrat Raphael Warnock is running from his left-wing recent past in the run-up in Georgia, and now comes a video of him saying, America, nobody can serve God and the military. Well, a more troubling sign of Warnock's radicalism is his fear, uh, his clear record of anti-Israeli rhetoric. Warnock, a Baptist pastor in Atlanta, issued a joint statement with other religious leaders in 2019, likening America's ally Israel to apartheid South Africa and communist East Germany. We saw the pattern that's uh, that seems to have been borrowed and perfected from other previous oppressive regimes, uh, read the statement signed by Warnock and others following a trip to Israel. The ever-present physical walls that wall in Palestinians and a political wall reminiscent to the Berlin Wall, the heavy material, uh, militarization of the West Bank reminiscent of the military occupation of Namibia by apartheid South Africa. A new poll shows the race is tight, but it's a poll. Well, another Georgia county finds uncounted ballots uh, from the story, a memory card that hadn't been uploaded to in Fayetteville County, just south of Atlanta, was discovered during a hand tally of the votes in the presidential race that stems from part of a legally mandated audit to ensure that new election machines counted the votes accurately. A top official in the Secretary of State's office says the memory card's 2,755 votes are not enough to flip the lead in the state from Democrat Joe Biden to Republican President Donald Trump, but it does uh, cry out for greater accuracy. The breakdown of the uncounted ballots was 1,577 for Trump, 1,128 for Biden, 43 for Libertarian Joe Jorgensen, and seven write-ins. Michigan board uh, that was split on whether to uh, certify the results reversed course late yesterday and voted unanimously to do so. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal explains case by case the rumors and innuendo about the Dominion voting machines saying they are unfounded. Most of the voting machines in the country are Dominion. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later, we're going to talk with Dr. Kevin Pham. We'll find out about a new test the FDA has authorized. It's a rapid home test for COVID-19. Hmm. I hope it's different from the COVID lobotomy that I've had, and I know some of you have had as well. Well, continuing to uh, take a look at the news, primarily from Wednesday, most Democrats declared Tuesday that Nancy Pelosi will be elected overwhelmingly by her party this week to run for another term as House Speaker in January. But the California Democrat may face a mini-rebellion from a group of swing district lawmakers who are unhappy with a slate of election losses and a leftward shift in messaging. I'm right now very passionately undecided. That's a quote from Representative Dean Phillips, a Minnesota Democrat, speaking to the Washington Examiner. Democrats have lost a net of eight seats so far. Several outstanding races favor GOP candidates and Republicans have flipped a dozen seats held by Democrats, all in swing districts. 
More lockdowns, more resistance. I suppose I don't need to tell you, but as Democratic governors are excited about uh, cracking down, Rand Paul says, I'm going to do everything I can to try to prevent Biden from locking us up and locking us down and forcing us to wear masks forever. We don't go on like this forever, or we can't. In New York, more police say that they will not be crashing uh, Thanksgiving celebrations, despite the governor's mandate. And Moderna and Pfizer, uh, their breakthroughs go beyond COVID-19. The science bodes well for not just conquering future viruses, but a range of diseases as well. There's that silver lining, I suppose, we're all hoping for. Black Lives Matter is giving uh, marching orders to California's governor. They have demanded he appoint a black woman to replace Kamala Harris in the U.S. Senate. And a petition at Harvard demands no former Trump officials attend, teach, or speak at the university. Well, because the woke elite cannot handle opposition, uh, Brett Stevens points out what today is leftism, at least when it comes to intellectual life, not what it used to be. This is more illiberal, if you will. Once it was predominantly liberal, albeit with radical fringes, now it is predominantly progressive or woke with centrist leftists in dissent. Once it was irreverent, now it's pious. Once it believed that truth was best discovered by engaging opposing view, points of view, now it believes that truth can be established by eliminating uh, opposing, opposing points of view. Once it cared to, about process, now it is obsessed with outcomes. Once it understood with Walt Whitman that we contain multitudes, now it is uh, into dualities. We are privileged or powerless, white or of color, racist or anti-racist, oppressor or oppressed. Nothing more nothing less. Well, Camp Biden is talking of student loan forgiveness via executive order, which appears to be legally impossible. Biden says Congress must act and quickly. Well, Trump fires uh, Chris Krebs, a top cyber official who refused to back election claims of fraud, and the Senate has failed to advance the contentious nomination of Judy Shelton to the Federal Reserve. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign is filing suit in Nevada, arguing mass discrepancies and irregulars, irregularities. Rather, Wayne County, Michigan, has certified the election results after initially handling a win to the GOP. Republicans are focusing on tightening election laws as lawsuits are fizzling. Well, a detailed turnout data show how Georgia turned blue. Joe Biden put Georgia in the Democratic column for the first time since 1992 by making huge gains among affluent, college-educated, and older voters in the suburbs around Atlanta. The findings suggest that Mr. Biden's win in Georgia may not yet herald a new progressive majority in what was a reliably red state as Democrats still depend on the support of traditionally conservative voters to win statewide. PJ Media argues that a Biden presidency will make cops' lives even more dangerous. And Nancy Antoinette snuck $350 million for 50 richest zip codes into the COVID relief bill. The FBI still won't come clean about having spied on Donald Trump. And Stacey Abrams was again lauded as an election hero. But Georgia saw its lowest share of black votes since 2006. Tens of millions of ARs and magazines uh, would be taxed under Biden's proposal. And double standards, as America locks down 20 lawmakers from three states, really just flew to um, Mali to mingle with a bunch of lobbyists at a posh resort in four days. Now, as I mentioned, there are two standards here. COVID apparently makes distinctions between those who are in positions of authority and influence uh, and those of uh, the rest of us who are hunkered down in our homes. They can go out, mingle with one another uh, with impunity from a scientific point of view. Uh, and if you have the right political point of view and you're gathering for uh, that purpose, apparently COVID 
um, is a respecter of persons. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter demands Gavin Newsom appoint a black woman to fill Senator Harris's seat. And if he doesn't, well, BLM will burn down America. Actually, wait, Newsom says you can't gather in large groups. Crisis averted. Well, Trump reverses Arlington National Cemetery's decision to cancel wreaths across America, and he's seeking a final stamp on drug prices with a sweeping rule. Pfizer will seek authorization for COVID vaccine within days, according to Time magazine, and the FDA has authorized the first COVID test for self-testing at home. A federal judge approves a landmark $8.3 billion Purdue Pharma opioid settlement, and Trump formally ordered the Pentagon to pull 2,500 troops from Afghanistan and Iraq. The U.S. military is ranked marginal as Russia and China expand their forces. A New York man allegedly staged a hate crime against himself, the Washington, or rather post-millennial reports, and an author accuses Target of caving to woke activists by briefly pulling a book deemed transphobic for challenging uh, the, the status quo. D.C. public school handouts blame the pandemic on racism and capitalism. Again, the, the, apparently the, um, the virus uh, is a respecter of persons. And a California school district bans four classic books that deal with racial issues. Mississippi's governor proposes a patriotic education fund to combat indoctrination. And Andrew Cuomo's uh, gets to a pay raise despite horrible decision making and a $63 billion budget deficit. I think I'm going to talk to our employers, James. The FBI um, is investigating Texas AG Ken Paxton for allegedly abusing the power of his office. And the UK will end the sale of gas-powered vehicles by 2030. Just a swish of the wand. While millennials, or rather millions in Africa, are being sacrificed on the altar of green energy. Is your birdwatching society racist? Well, the spectator says that could be the case. A birdwatching group concerned with uh, banning pesticides and preventing drilling on federal lands has a 0% chance of being uh, filled with crypto racists. But 2020 is a time where um, all are called to reckon with racism, and so the passion of the Audubon Society has come. Per Politico, it began with a botched diversity meeting, which sounds like the setup of an episode of The Office. From there, things spiraled out of control. Apparently, even birdwatching has implications that you may not have considered. California Republicans are ripping the governor there for his hypocritical highbrow dining excursion while lecturing the rest of the state. Governor Gavin Newsom's extravagant lunch at one of California's wine country's most exclusive fine dining establishments has drawn a storm of criticism and it could wind up costing him more than just the tab. The Democrat has been fending off critics for more than a week after seeming to violate his own coronavirus restrictions to celebrate a well-connected friend's birthday. He's the one telling people to change their Thanksgiving plans, yet he himself is gathering privately at an exclusive restaurant that many Californians can't afford, particularly now under lockdown. That's what Republican State Assemblyman James Gallagher said on Wednesday night. The French Laundry, which offers meals that begin at $350 a plate, hosted Newsom, his wife, and others for a... uh, a bougie brunch, a birthday brunch honoring Jason Kinney, a lobbyist and friend of the governor. Also in attendance, the CEO of the California Medical Association, who, like Newsom, should know a thing or two about the state's COVID guidelines and that organization's top lobbyists. Uh, Newsom recently urged Golden State residents to pop their masks on between bites while eating out. He didn't wear his the whole time, but a diner at another table photographed him 
at the swanky restaurant without a mask at all, then sent the photos to Fox 11 in Los Angeles. In other developments, a Louisiana pastor is seeking emergency relief from criminal charges after defying the ban on large gatherings. And Tucker Carlson says Gavin Newsom's French laundry birthday dinner goes beyond mere hypocrisy. Meanwhile, Cuomo snaps at reporters who asked if uh, New York City schools would reopen or remain open. The governor uh, went into a shouting match with one of the uh, media with reporters on Wednesday while denying the New York City public schools would be shut down due to a spike in the coronavirus cases, only for Mayor de Blasio to announce the closures minutes later. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, both Cuomo and de Blasio are facing blowback over handling of New York City school closures. And combative Cuomo was caught off guard when he was actually um, asked about the subject and the timeline related to it. New York Dem Governor Cuomo's office blames religious gatherings as super spreaders, but he's ignored Biden's celebrations. Apparently, that political exception that COVID has applied applied here. NBC's Lester Holt ripped the MAGA march as a super spreader to uh, to be mad at, again, avoiding the Biden victory crowds and the BLM protests. They fell in the right category. Well, a GOP member of Michigan's Wayne County has rescinded votes to certify the election. And Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer is facing possible impeachment proceedings for corrupt conduct. Michigan election officials canceled a meeting after a contentious certification vote in Wayne County and fired election security official Chris Krebs is out of his lane with voter fraud statements, according to DHS, an official there. Actor Matthew McConaughey says that he could be interested in a future in uh, politics, a run for Texas governor, and Nancy Pelosi seems to signal this could be her last term as speaker. Ilhan Omar was mocked after misspelling a book of the Bible while attempting to school Senator Rubio on faith. And rural Oregon counties have voted to uh, discuss seceding from the state of Oregon and join Greater Idaho, as they're calling it. The New York Times op-ed admits that Trump was right. Democrats were wrong about keeping schools open. They can now make that kind of an admission. The election is over. And a dash hound rescued a, I guess it's called a Chewini. I don't even want to know what that looks like, from a mountain lion attack in Colorado. I think that's impressive. Airline CEOs are asking Congress for more aid and Wonder Woman 1984 is set for simultaneous theatrical HBO and Max releases for those who are into Wonder Woman. Some Harvard students say not so fast on the Trump ban. So at least there's two sides being expressed. And a tech titan is fleeing San Francisco for Florida, saying the city is poorly managed. Tesla is morphing into more than a car maker. Well, duh. Well, Republicans want almost every election where redistricting was at stake. That's the headline from 538, which ironically consistently had the GOP polling badly prior to the election. And the Washington Post called for an end to the Electoral College. Not a shock considering media is leftist and the Electoral College threatens their power. Their editorial board determined it is alarming that a candidate came so close to winning while polling more than 5 million fewer votes than his opponent nationwide. The Electoral College, whatever virtue it may have had for the founding fathers is no longer tenable for American democracy. You should look at the uh, electoral map, and that might explain at least to some degree why it's still important. David Harson, he points out that those who are genuinely concerned about the future of American governance would be calling to strengthen institutions that provide political stability, not destroy them. But when your concerns about American democracy are really just a euphemism for partisan power grabs, you end up making lots of sloppy arguments. 
And a New York Times op-ed admits shutting down schools was wrong. It goes into some detail. And while I wish I could uh, share them with you, it's worth hearing the New York Times admitting it was wrong. We'll move on. Human rights campaign is demanding Biden deny accreditation to Christian schools and colleges. Dr. Moeller, in response, says this. The most shocking demand in the report is found under the section for the Department of Education. The human rights campaign demands the Biden administration to ensure that non-discrimination policies and science-based curriculum are not undermined by religious exception to accreditation standards. That's Senator. I'm not seeing any documents like this before. The human rights campaign is effectively calling for religious colleges and schools to be coerced into the sexual revolution or stripped of accreditation. Now, when you're talking about science being applied, some of what's being imposed on the culture is so anti-science, this is almost laughable if it were not so serious. Megan Kelly is pulling her son from woke school after it uh, sent out a racist anti-white letter that, according to the story, comp- story, compared white children to killer cops, not because of what they've done, but because of what they are. California's governor had medical officials at the no mask birthday party I mentioned earlier. And Pennsylvania is telling residents to wear masks in their own home on Thanksgiving, part of their new and insane guidelines. Governor Cuomo gives himself a big fat raise. So while restaurants are closing down over his COVID restrictions, his pay jumped considerably, but he was caught. So he later decided to forego that raise. Meanwhile, the governor is furious. Police refused to go house to house on Thanksgiving, making sure that there are no more than 10 people attending. New York Times says Thanksgiving is a myth. Bottom line, they say white people are bad, always have been. There's nothing to be thankful for. Enjoy. Tom Cotton says the Times should stick to stuffing and pumpkin pie. New records confirm troubling Biden family links to China and Russia. You can read more in The Examiner. And the gist of it is Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and Senate Homeland Security Chairman Ron Johnson unveiled what they called a super uh, supplemental uh, to the report they published in late September. Uh, They wrote that after their September report was issued, new sources went public with additional information about business relationships and financial arrangements among and between the Biden family and their business associates, including several foreign nationals, end quote. Biden's deputy chief of staff touted mandatory buybacks of assault weapons, note mandatory, and Trump's um, boost to nuclear power will rightly live on in a Biden administration. Meanwhile, climate eco-fascists wrongly want Biden to bar appointees with fossil fuel ties. A presumptive Biden administration plans to continue Obama tradition of packing White House with corporate lobbyists. Uh, Some of the progressives are wringing their hands in response. Well, Facebook's election fact checker apparently honored Biden in 2017 and employees donated to Democrats. So the fact checkers were not entirely unbiased. Well, Box co-founder Matthew Yglesias uh, quit citing inherent tensions and a desire to be independent. Uh, Much too uh, much of current political debate consists of people clicking like Uh, clicking like on content that flatter their prejudices and biases, content that is usually crafted by other people in order to harvest those clicks. The reality is that most people, most of the time, mostly don't care whether the stuff they read about politics is true or if the ideas they advocate are actually uh, workable. My goal here is to work on a scale that's small enough that it can afford to cater to people who actually do want to ask these questions. That's a quote from uh, Matthew Iglesias. Lockdowns are being reimposed nationwide, but the two largest Republican states, Texas and Florida, announce 
no more lockdowns. Global debt is going to hit a record $277 trillion. That's a $20 trillion increase in 2020. And the FAA has cleared Boeing 737 MAX to fly again. Restaurants are suing to overturn Michigan's indoor dining ban as they are on life support. And a judge ordered a San Diego strip club to reopen as churches fight for the same right. Study says Americans are understandably fed up with church restrictions. Nearly 200 have been arrested in Florida for their role in a sex trafficking network and bump stock prosecution backfired in Houston. What happened? A federal prosecutor withdrew the unique charge before the trial began for a Houston man accused of owning the device. However, the defense was prepared to call an ATF expert to testify that bump stocks, attachments that cause a rifle to fire more rapidly, do not render a semi-automatic gun a machine gun. Well, U.S. coronavirus deaths have reached 250,000. Vaccines are coming, just a reminder. And scientists who initially warned about containment surfaces rather contaminated surfaces, now say that the virus spreads primarily through inhaled droplets and that there is little to no evidence that deep cleaning mitigates the threat indoors. Meanwhile, another study indicates masks make no significant difference. New York City is closing school campuses to curb the latest outbreak, and confusion continues to abound as competing uh, bits of information tell us the diametrically opposite thing about what's going on. Brown University students, uh, government narrowly rejected a bid to remove Roman statues. Apparently they're offensive. And Harvard students launched a petition to ban Trump administration officials from campus on any capacity. A Washington state school district decided Asians aren't students of color. In their latest equity report, administrators at North Thurston Public Schools lumped Asians in with whites and measured their academic achievements against students of color, a category that includes blacks, Latinx, Native American, Pacific Islander, multiracial students who have experienced persistent opportunity gaps. Uh, The school district must be taking its cues from Harvard. Philadelphia's mayor was spotted drinking at a bar before announcing total lockdown on indoor dining. And Senator Dianne Feinstein, who supports a nationwide mask mandate, is seen maskless in public. Apparently that's the greatest offense one can commit these days. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour today, we'll hear from Dr. Kevin Pham. Uh, he is a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We've got some great news. The FDA authorized a rapid home test for COVID-19, a.k.a. the COVID lobotomy, that you don't have to send into a lab and can uh, pre- present results within 30 minutes. It's an important first step. We'll talk with him about what that means moving forward. We'll also share a classic interview with Mark David Hall. Professor Hall is the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth with Historical Truth. We're continuing to wind our way through some of the headlines from the last couple of days since we had a radiothon yesterday. Well, a Croatian man died after falling from a ladder, but he was actually killed by COVID, according to doctors. Raises questions about how you determine who has uh, died from COVID-19. Well, the same person counting COVID uh, deaths must also be handling our election. Speaking of which, how many of the ballots have tested positive for covid Okay, that's a rhetorical question. An Indonesian coffin maker became an instant millionaire after a $1.8 million space rock crashes through his roof. He'll be able to pay for that now. And a pathetic, dilapidated Rockefeller Plaza Christmas tree is uh, on brand for 2020. No one's complaining because everyone thinks, yeah, that's about the kind of Christmas tree we deserve. 
to reflect the year 2020. Well, Charlie Brown, I have the saddest Christmas tree, Rockefeller Center said. It seemed about right. Well, a Canadian dog who fled to America for a better life was sadly extradited back to socialist rule. True story, not a Babylon Bee. Hey, on this day in history, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln dedicates a national cemetery at the site of the Civil War battlefield at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. 1919, the Senate rejects the Treaty of Versailles by a vote of 55 in favor, 39 against, short of the two-thirds majority needed for ratification. 1959, Ford Motor Company announced its halting production of the unpopular Edsel. 1969, Apollo 12 astronauts Charles Conrad and Alan Bean make the second manned landing on the moon. And finally, on this day in history, 1977, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat becomes the first Arab leader to visit Israel. Well, as lawsuits and recounts continue, the official outcome of the 2020 election is slowly coming into focus. Where do things currently stand? Well, in Pennsylvania on Sunday, President Donald Trump's legal team dropped its primary fraud allegation due to last Friday's ruling by the U.S. Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which effectively narrowed the parameters of the suit. The fewer than 700 votes now in question are clearly not enough to overcome Joe Biden's currently uh, current 83,000 vote lead. So Trump's legal team elected to drop that suit in order to focus on efforts, uh, uh, its efforts on the claim of denial of equal protection in pro-Trump counties. Well, the argument here is that the pro-Biden counties in which Philadelphia and Pittsburgh reside Voters were invited by election officials to cure defective ballots, whereas the same offer was not extended to voters in pro-Trump counties. The problem is that even if the county, rather the court, sides with Trump, the number of ballots impacted is still not enough to overcome Biden's lead. And as Andrew McCarthy observes, the main problem for President Trump's Trump rather continues to be the math. In Michigan, the two Republicans on the Wayne County Board of Canvassers were pressured by Democrats and harassed by leftists until they agreed to drop their objections and vote to certify the county's election results. They have now backtracked, as the Washington Post reports, in affidavits signed on Wednesday evening. The two GOP members of the four-member Wayne County Board of Canvassers allege that they were improperly pressured into certifying the election and accused Democrats of reneging on a promise to audit votes in Detroit. However, the board's Democrat chairman, Jonathan Kinlock, says certified results were already sent to the secretary of state. So it's too late for the two Republicans to change their minds. Uh, the two Republicans claim they were essentially deceived by the Democrats who assured their uh, colleagues that the Michigan secretary of state, Joycelyn Benson, had agreed to conduct an audit based on allegations of serious flaws, which deserved investigation when, in fact, Benson had not agreed to do so. Will the Republicans rescission be permitted? If so, expect wrangling over the vote in Wayne County, where Detroit is located, to heat up as it is um, uh, the county that put Biden into the lead, which now uh, sits at a statewide 150,000 votes. In Wisconsin, Republicans are crying foul in the Badger State, too, charging the Democrats on the state's election commission were seeking to change the rules following the Trump campaign's filing of a recount petition on the uh, county's of Dane and Milwaukee. Reince Priebus, Trump's 2016 campaign manager and first chief of staff, responded, let's get this straight. The Trump campaign sent the Wisconsin election uh, uh, committee $3 million and filed its petition 
petition for a recount. Then the WEC immediately called for a special meeting to change certain recount rules that deal with the issues brought up in the petition. You can't make this up. It appears that the crux of the disagreement centers on rules determining the legality of absentee ballots and observers' ability to witness counting. Trump trails by just 33,000 votes there. And finally, in Georgia, election officials have yet to announce the results of the statewide hand recount initiated by Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. While three counties uncover a total of just over 5,000 previously uncounted votes, which cut Biden's lead down to roughly 12,800, there appears to be no significant instances of voter fraud. Once the results are announced, then the numbers are not expected to significantly change. Then, by state law, Trump will be entitled to request another recount. As things currently stand, Trump's path to victory has narrowed considerably. He would need to flip both Michigan and Wisconsin, likely via court battles, and hope the outcome of the Georgia recount has somehow gone his way. Even with a court win, Pennsylvania looks to be mathematically out of reach. So certification is likely in those states sooner rather than later. Well, liberal media figures and outlets are suggesting that Joe Biden should take an aggressive approach to conservative media when he becomes president of the United States. There's no question that Democrats are gearing up to use their new power to apply far more pressure than ever on Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. to censor any views they deem threatening. Glenn Greenwald, a journalist, says, tweeting on Monday, referencing comments made by former President Barack Obama about controlling the Internet with a combination of government regulation and corporate practices. Please look at what is going uh, is going here, Greenwald continued. Democrats are defining whoever opposes them not as adversaries, but as national security threats fascists, terrorists, etc., all to justify blocking them from the Internet using their influence with Silicon Valley. Well, the Intercept co-founder added that CNN, NBC, and The Atlantic are the outlets that are most loudly demanding that disinformation from their perspective be suppressed, though these outlets are the ones who not only sold the, uh, well, I won't use the word that was used by Mr. Um, Greenwald, but um, misinformation, but suppressed uh, through these outlets um, on Iraq, the war, uh, also uh, the last four years in denigrating the Russia or uh, uh, took uh, greater influence in the outcome, not only of the election, but in the four years of the uh, conspiratorial insanity of the Trump administration. They want their discourse monopoly back, he says, and he goes on to say uh, his comments come uh, the same day that the crooked media founder Tommy Vider published a piece explaining why Joe Biden must sideline Fox. Uh, Vider lamented that Fox News is treated as a legitimate news organization and says that Biden's team should approach Fox News with eyes, not arms, wide open. Call Fox what it is, an extension of the Republican Party. And this is so laughable, given that every other outlet could be described as just the opposite uh, and partisan. Um, Say it often, repetitive messaging works. Just uh, ask Lion Ted and Low Energy Jeb. Reject the absurd insistence that the network has a real news division. Again, um, unity is being described and defined as just shut up, if I can be so crude as to use the phrase that most parents wouldn't allow their sons and daughters to use. Forgive my, um, my clarity there. Well, lacking an alternative, House Dems tapped Pelosi to stand for Speaker. Um, House uh, Democrats nominated her to another term as House Speaker Wednesday with no other representative competing for that post. She must now prevail in a floor vote in January to officially retain that gavel. So uh, it's expected that that will, in fact, 
be the case. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic coming in the uh, top of the hour. And then we'll talk with Kevin Pham. He's a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the FDA's new rapid home test available soon. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. While the Food and Drug Administration on Tuesday gave an emergency green light to the first rapid coronavirus test that can be done at home from start to finish. And this, of course, is a game changer. I refer to the um, test that I've had in the past as a uh, something of a lobotomy in that the uh, the test required a swab to go so far up into my nasal cavity, I felt like things changed. Anyway, to talk with us about this test that was developed by the California-based company uh, Lucera Health is Kevin Pham. Dr. Pham is a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Now, everyone's saying this is great news. Would you characterize this as great news, or is there another side to this? I would say it's mostly great news. It's um, what I would characterize it more as is a very good first step because this this will let us so let's just talk about um, self-testing at home this mm-hmm. will if we have more access to this we'll be able to make better decisions for ourselves for instance if we're about to travel somewhere for the holidays and if i'm going to go see my grandma for instance i could if i could just run a test for myself you know i've been i've been healthy this entire time i've not i've not been going out to bars or restaurants or anything like that um, so I don't think I have COVID-19, but if I can just run this test myself, I can be a lot more sure of it. Um, you know, not being able to run the test, then I would question whether it'd be a smart thing to do to, to go visit my grandma at this time. So, and then you multiply that out to, you know, hundreds of millions of people traveling for the holidays, and that'll let a lot of us make better decisions about what to do. And if any of us test positive, then it'll, it'll help us, um, it'll help us control the spread by not going to put our family members at risk. I guess the obvious question is how accurate is this test compared to the test that you would have to have done elsewhere? So this test is a, um, this one in particular is a PCR test, which is similar to the ones that are, that are typically, typically being run when you drive up to a, a station and they take a nasal sample. Um, it, it uses the same technology, so it should be, it should be close to, if you, if you collect the sample correctly, then it should be uh, just as accurate. Um, the the main source of inaccuracy would be people who are um, who are not collecting the samples correctly. But you know this is this is the front of the nostril. Is as you had mentioned, this is not the uh, the lobotomy back of the nose um, brainstem sample that we that we used to rely on. So this one this uh, it shouldn't be that hard to to do. It is currently only authorized for um, those ages 14 and older. So by then you should have a uh, a pretty good idea of how to how to get at your nose, but frankly, children of all ages have been picking their noses for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And my understanding is uh, you can only get this test by prescription. You can't just walk into Walmart and pick one up off the uh, the counter. Uh, so that adds an extra element to getting the test. Uh, but your thoughts about in future, if it's likely that the test will be easier to access and less expensive, they tell us it's going to cost somewhere around fifty dollars or slightly less. Um, so this is why I say this is a good first step, uh, because it still does require a, a prescription. So if I'm if I'm going to go see my grandma, um, I'd have to what, go see the doctor to to go get this test. It, that doesn't make sense. You know, we already have home collection tests where we can just order online a collection kit and then send that sample into a lab. So 
it doesn't make any sense that if we have those kinds of tests, why we can't have this test free of prescriptions. Um, it just adds, it just requires to have a, a doctor in the mix, and that's going to slow down the process. Mm-hmm. When you could just deploy this en masse and let everyone be able to take the test themselves and start making better decisions for themselves on a, on a daily or at least routine basis. Um, but uh, as you had mentioned, this, this, this particular test kit is expected to be about $50. And the reason for that is that it requires the, uh, the machinery to run the, the, the PCR process. That is, that is a process where it, um, it takes any nucleic acid, any uh, genetic material from the virus, amplifies that out, and then tests and detects for that um, genetic material. So because it has to be able to do that, then you need the you need the extra machinery, and that's going to cost a little bit extra. $50 isn't too much to, to ask for, um, for a test, but to test yourself routinely, then that's going to be a big ask for a lot of Americans just to drop $50 to see grandma. Yeah, absolutely, or to go into work on that day. Um, my understanding is the test results, positive or negative, will be obvious from the test, but it's going to take uh, about a half an hour, and you would have uh, information as to whether or not you are uh, COVID-free. Yeah, it would take about it would take about half an hour because, uh, like I said, you need to um, amplify the genetic material from the virus, and that takes a little bit of a time. Uh, well, this is a little bit different from the, the antigen test that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. uh, where you just take a nasal sample and then stick it into a card. And then what that does is there's a material in the test that reacts to the presence of the virus. And so that takes it's a little bit faster, 15 minutes. Um, but as, also, as you had mentioned, it's a little less sensitive as well. Uh, so there are trade-offs. But that, that test is five, only $5. And, uh, you know, I talked to some people in the, um, in the manufacturing um, sector and they said that they that there could be a test that that, that uses similar technology that is about one dollar or less. So you know that kind of testing, while less sensitive, it could be a lot more available to a lot more people if if we just uh, develop and um, authorize it. Yeah, that would definitely be a game changer. Um, any downside to this? Any uh, caution that you would uh, issue with this uh, kind of test that will eventually be or fairly soon be available uh, broadly to people through their primary care physician? The the main thing that I worry about with uh, with more available with more widely available testing is that it might at some point become not an enabling thing but a baseline thing. So. Uh, it could be in the future if some enterprising mayor or governor decides to to make make these kind of tests a requirement to, for instance, go to the grocery store or something like that 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 would be a bad thing. If 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 they make this this really incredible technology, if they make it a requirement instead of um, instead of an option for us, then that becomes that becomes a problem because then then they're asking us to go around with with our test results in order to come to uh, be a part of society, and that's. That's not a good thing. That's, that's a very bad thing, in fact. Well, Dr. Afam, thank you so much for talking with us and helping us better understand what's on the horizon. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon as new developments are announced. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Again, Dr. Kevin Pham is a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, talking about the FDA that has recently authorized a rapid home test for COVID-19. I'm relieved to learn that it's not the COVID lobotomy that I and I suppose many of you have had in which a swab uh, they require it to go up, and he used the word brainstem. <laughs> I thought I was making a joke, but maybe that's precisely what they were doing. Anyway, so this would be an easier test 
to administer to oneself. And again, it's limited to those who are 14 and older. My understanding is that if you were in a clinical setting, it can be applied to younger people, but the at-home version of it uh, can only be done uh, for those who are 14 and older. It's it's encouraging and inspiring to see the developments that are uh, on the horizon that will make this um, uh, this pandemic uh, easier to manage or at least to identify and to respond to this just being one of the the latest announced in the media. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Mark David Hall. He's the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. It's been around for about a year or so. Um, He'll be joining us in our classic interview in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Is there a link between Christian faith and American liberty? Well, in Did America Have a Christian Founding? My next guest offers a carefully researched, skillfully nuanced account of Christianity's influence on America's founders. Uh, in 2010, nationally recognized expert on religious freedom, Mark David Hall, gave a lecture at the Heritage Foundation. It was entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Well, his lecture caused quite a sensation. C-SPAN televised his talk, and an essay based on it was uh, downloaded more than 300,000 times. Well, in his new book, Dr. Hall, he expands upon this essay, making the airtight case that America's founders were not deists, that they did not create a godless constitution, that even Jefferson and Madison did not want a high wall separating church and state, that most founders believed the government should encourage Christianity, and that they embraced a robust understanding of religious liberty for biblical and theological regions, reasons rather. In addition, he explains why and how the founders viewed views rather are relevant today. Written in a clear and engaging style, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating modern myth from historical truth will convince skeptics and equip believers and conservatives to defend the idea that Christian thought was crucial to the nation's founding and that this is good news for all Americans. Well, Dr. Mark David Hall has been at George Fox University since 2001. He received a BA in political science from Wheaton College and a PhD in government from the University University of Virginia. In addition to teaching politics and honors, he is the director of the John Dickinson Forum for the Study of America's Founding Principles. His uh, primary research and writing interests are American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. In addition to having written and edited 12 books, he's also penned more than 100 journal articles, book chapters, reviews, and sundry pieces. In addition to teaching at Fox University, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Mark is associated uh, associated faculty at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion, and an affiliate scholar at the John Jay Institute. How on earth he has time to talk with us today, I could not tell you, but I am delighted to have uh, Dr. Mark David Hall with us here this afternoon. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. Well, let's begin by, um, as you do in the book, in the introduction, you write, scholars and popular authors routinely assert that America's founders were deists who desired the strict separation of church and state. Let's begin with the question, why is it important in the 21st century for us to explore this question and to understand it in its historic context? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to begin with, it's important just to have history right. We want an accurate account of history for its own sake. As well, I, I think James Wilson pointed out as a Supreme Court justice in the 1790s that good regimes sort of naturally pull people back to the first principles upon which 
the regimes were founded. So I think it's important to um, reflect on these principles and to try to remain faithful to this wonderful constitutional order that was bequeathed to us. As well, the U.S. Supreme Court has made it crystal clear that we must interpret, we, the U.S. Supreme Court justices, must interpret the, the First Amendment in light of its generating history. And so the answer to these questions have, has very mm-hmm. important implications for law and public policy. I mentioned uh, in the introduction that you gave a lecture at the Heritage Foundation that caused quite a controversy, a, a sensation, because the notion that America had a Christian founding, and we'll define what that means in just a moment, has become uh, controversial. Why is this question controversial today? And when did that controversy, if you will, begin? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it began in the 19th century where some um, authors, not too many, but some started questioning the commitment of America's founders to Christian orthodoxy. And then uh, probably more prevalent in the 19th century, a number of popular authors asserted maybe a little bit too strongly that, no, 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 all of the founders were wonderful, pious Christian men. The debate really took off in the 20th century where the academy, um, that is universities and colleges, really became populated by progressive secularists. And I think if they look back to the American founding, um, they were looking for a usable past, and they wanted to sort of help free America from its past ties to religion, and they they wanted a wall of separation uh, between church and state. And so my main concern in this book, I I begin each chapter with, you know, maybe 20 quotations of scholars, important scholars, and peer-reviewed books saying things like, most of America's founders were deists, or America's founders wanted a wall of separation between church and state. So this is a very pervasive set of myths. And I'd like to think in the five chapters or so of the book that I utterly demolish these myths and then argue affirmatively that Christianity had a very important impact on America's founders. Well, let's begin with the subject you cover in the first chapter. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners understand what it means when it has uh, said that the founders were deists and why that is contrary to a Christian um, uh, foundation of this uh, constitutional republic. Can you explain what that means and why it, first of all, is wrong, but why it's troubling? Sure. So theism is a movement that comes about with the Enlightenment. And basically, it's a rationalist approach to religion. So deists tend to reject things that they feel and doesn't square with reason. So things such as um, the Trinity, or the Incarnation, or the Atonement, or the Virgin Birth. These things aren't reasonable in the light of the deist, and so they reject them. Now, they're, they're, they're willing to agree that reason teaches us that there's some sort of creator God, but this God, it is oftentimes held, just simply created the world and then steps away from it. So God does not intervene in the affairs of men and nations. What's utterly uh, astonishing in my mind is you have prominent scholar after prominent scholar, including a number of Christian college professors, writing things like most of America's founders were theists. And what I do in that chapter is I go through the sort of evidence they present to make their case. I carefully define deism. And by the end of the chapter, I, I argue that maybe there's three deists among America's civic founders in, in that era. And three, not many. And you, you can make a good case that we should count maybe 800 or so men and a few women as founders, and yet we have clear evidence that one, two, or maybe three of them are theists. So it's just astonishing that people routinely make these unsupportable claims. Is it, be, is it bad scholarship, or is it a convenient way of redefining what the original intent um, was? Yeah, I think it's, it's a combination. I think it's bad scholarship. I think it's... Um, 
sometimes a willful neglect of evidence. To give one example, George Washington is always listed in these studies as being a deist, and yet George Washington references providence more than 270 times in his writings and private letters and public documents. He very specifically talks about times in which God um, specifically intervened to save him personally, to save the American army, to save the nation. Um, Now, you might say some of these things might be rhetorical first, but again, he's doing this all the time throughout his entire career, including in private letters. And so it's just astonishing that people continue to label uh, Washington as a deist, even someone like Thomas Jefferson, who is more accurately labeled as such. But even Jefferson, upon occasion, talks about um, in the notes on the state of Virginia when he fears, when he trembles, when he recalls that God is just. And this is in the context of slavery, with the idea that God will come and punish um, Americans for for permitting this vile institution of slavery. And, um, you know, this is not the sort of thing a deist God does. And so, you know, Jefferson, you know, we know for sure he is not an Orthodox Christian. He clearly denies some basic tenets of Orthodox Christianity. But that's not the same thing as being a deist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let me, before we move forward, let me ask you, I think, a, a an important question, and that's what's con- what constitutes America's founding? Because there seems to be some disagreement even on that point. Sure. So I, I lay out three possibilities. One would be America's earliest colonial settlement, that is the first settlement in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And if that's what we mean by founding, then I think indisputably um, we had a Christian founding. In Puritan New England, almost no one would argue with me about that. So I focus more on the mid-Atlantic colonies such as Pennsylvania, in the southern colonies, such as Virginia, and I make it clear that even in these colonies, people are profoundly concerned with the things of God. Another possibility would be the War for American Independence. One could argue that these early colonies were a part of the British Empire, after all, and it's only with independence that that these colonies break from Great Britain and become independent. And so I spent some time exploring that, and I, I contend that America's War for Independence was both, was, was both biblical and just. But one could argue that the only thing that resulted from that war was 13 independent states. And so another argument would be really America came into being. America was founded with the U.S. Constitution. And so I spent some time here. Now, the argument of the other side, of course, is that God isn't really referenced in the Constitution, not to get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787. But I wouldn't want to put too much weight on that. What I argue instead is that we can point to a number of very specific ways in which America's founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas, and so therefore, even even though God isn't referenced much in the Constitution, I think it's fair to say that even if we look to the creation of our constitutional order— that America still had a Christian founding because of this Christian influence. We're talking with Dr. Mark David Hall, author of Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking with uh, Dr. Mark David Hall, a professor from George Fox University and much more. His latest book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth, in which in five short chapters that are very approachable to the average reader, he addresses questions like the myth of the founders' uh, deism. The United States does not have a godless constitution. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and the First Amendment, the founders believed civic authorities should protect, promote, and encourage religion and morality 
morality, and in his final chapter, Christianity, Religious Liberty, and Religious Exemptions. Now, Dr. Hall, let me ask you about um, our government. It is considered secular, but that is not the same as godless. Now, you devote a chapter to that subject. What does it mean um, that the uh, founders respected religion, uh, they established a secular government, but the Constitution is not godless? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure I like the lay, label of a secular government. I, I think the founders clearly um, saw the church and the state as separate institutions, a document that could be, or an argument that could be traced back to the words of Jesus, right? Given to Caesar mm-hmm. what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. They were clearly influenced by the Christian convictions when they created our constitutional order. They clearly thought it was appropriate to include um, religion in, in public debates, for presidents to issue calls for prayer and fasting, and that sort of thing. At the state level, sometimes legislatures clearly appeal to religious convictions or biblical convictions when passing legislation. One of my favorite examples of this is Pennsylvania, when it passed an act to abolish slavery. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I quote the document in my um, in my book. Basically, the legislature says, recognizing that, gifts, that liberty is a gift from God, and that we cannot deny this gift to our fellow um, creatures created in God's image, we hereby abolish slavery. Um, That's a paraphrase, but again, you can read the document. And so, you know, according to people from the Freedom from Religion Foundation or the American Human Association, all of those things I just mentioned would be inappropriate, Uh, but the founders had no conception of that. They, they, They did not have this bright line dividing their religious convictions from their role as civic leaders or officials. Now, some would say, then you're describing a theocracy. What would be the right way to refer to uh, the government, uh, if not secular? Yeah, I would say, first of all, when people say that sort of thing, I ask them to define theocracy. Of course, most literally, it means rule by God, and that's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about. It might also mean rule by priest, and that's clearly not what we're talking about either. Um, You know, so I think we're talking about a Republican form of government where the people go and they vote based on whatever criterion is important to them. And that certainly could include a person's faith or lack of faith. And again, that's something we could debate. You know, I think I'd be comfortable electing a pro-life, fiscally conservative Sikh over a pro-choice, fiscally irresponsible Christian. But someone might say, no, 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 it's so important that elected officials be Christians. I'll vote for this Christian over the Sikh, even though she has all the wrong policies. But that's clearly appropriate. Article 6 of the Constitution prohibits religious tests for office, but that just simply says the United States of America and now the states can't say something like only Catholics can be in office or only Protestants. Um, so, you know, this is a citizen level. Now, once you get to be a legislator, you get to vote on whatever criteria you think is important. And so, for instance, if you believe that Jim Crow legislation is an affront to justice, to God's natural law, you could certainly, based on those convictions, vote against it. And thank goodness many of our congressmen did in the 1960s. Um, Has the United States Supreme Court been faithful to the vision of the founders and the framers of our Constitution? That's a long story. In 1947, (laughs) the Supreme Court articulated a view of history that said, in effect, the Establishment Clause requires a wall of separation between church and state. Of course, that sort of wall is nowhere in the Constitution. It's really a completely unworkable metaphor, right? If taken literally, that would mean churches want to have to obey zoning requirements and police want to um, protect churches, right? Nobody ever interpreted it that way. 
it's true that in the, in the 1960s and the 1970s, the, the court tended to interpret the Establishment Clause as requiring something like a wall so that you couldn't have Bible reading or prayer in public schools. You couldn't have funds that would go to support various programs in private religious schools and that sort of thing. Um, so I would say that was very unfaithful to the intent of the founders or the original understanding of the Establishment Clause. Fortunately, since the, since the 80s anyway, the court has moved towards a more reasonable approach to interpreting the Establishment Clause. Um, this is evidenced very well, I think, in the recent cross case out of Maryland, a case that involved a 40-foot cross put up shortly after World War I to memorialize the dead from the, from the county. Now, as you might imagine, the Freedom from Religion folks and the American Humanist Association folks says this has got to go. We have got to destroy this cross or decapitate it or move it. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at this and by a vote of 7 to 2 said the cross may stand. And I, I think that's a very appropriate decision, one that reflects the original understanding of the Establishment Clause. Let's talk about this notion of the separation of church and state, a, a phrase that was used in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I think it's fair to say private correspondence. Was there a debate about the, in quotes, separation between church and state? And how is that relevant for interpreting the First Amendment? Yeah, certainly there are all sorts of issues that came up with respect to um, how church and state might be related. Again, I think clearly, um, I think any Christian in his or her right mind supports a form of church-state separation. We don't want the government telling churches how they should run themselves in terms of ecclesiastical governance. And um, we also don't want, say, bishops to automatically have seats in the U.S. Senate, right? So there should be a form of separation. Um, The issues tend to come down with respect to things like, is it permissible for a president to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation, a proclamation that says everyone should go to his or her house of worship and give thanks to God if he or she wants to, right? So it's a very non-coercive sort of thing. And if we look at the debates in the era surrounding that, I, I, I tell a story in my book, um, it's involving the first federal Congress, the very Congress that drafted the First Amendment. I think it was two days after Congress drafted the First Amendment, no, it was one day after, um, Elias Boudinot, later president of the American Bible Society, said, hey, we should ask George Washington to issue a call for um, a Thanksgiving Day proclamation. Now, there was there were a few people who objected. Adonis Burke and Thomas Tucker said, oh, no, we can't do that. That's European practice. But Roger Sherman, the old Puritan from Connecticut, said, no, 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 it's okay. It's a biblical practice. It's something worthy of Christian imitation. Well, the House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the House. And President Washington, he didn't have to issue a call for a Thanksgiving Day proclamation if he didn't want to, but he did. And I would encourage all your listeners just to Google this, George Washington Thanksgiving Day Proclamation, Mm -hmm. 1789. It will come up right away. It is beautiful. It's robustly um, theological. And so I think that shows that the founders had no sense that it was inappropriate for presidents to issue such calls. And that's just one instance, and I discuss a number of other examples in the book. And we're just about out of time, but for those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can be interpreted or rather reinterpreted at, at will in view of contemporary norms, are you hopeful that in better understanding America's Christian founding that we will uh, be faithful to that Christian founding or at least return to it? 
I am hopeful about that. Now, the sort of most extreme progressive living constitution types, I think there's no hope for them. Uh, they just say the founders' views don't matter. I think for conservatives, we sort of naturally get, get that the founders' views matter. I think my book has the possibility of reaching into the middle. People who kind of like the rule of law, who don't think judges should make things up willy-nilly, who want to have an accurate account of America's history. So I think if they would read this book, um, they would come away with a much greater understanding of Christianity's role in the founding, what the founders intended with respect to um, church-state relations, and especially, we haven't talked much about religious liberty, but the founders were profoundly committed to religious liberty for all Americans, not just for Christians, for Jews and Muslims and others. And I think that's an important um, tale that we have to tell today in this day and age where religious liberty is under such assault. Absolutely. Once again, the title of the book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Uh, Dr. Mark David Hall, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my honor. Appreciate it very much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson, an excellent read, and uh, might make a great gift as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the CDC has updated their coronavirus Thanksgiving guidance in a telebriefing they held on Thursday. Uh, the CDC and the and um, other organizations warned against traveling to visit relatives and friends this Thanksgiving and during the holiday season. I suppose they're referring to Christmas and urged those with possible coronavirus symptoms or other illnesses to stay home. So not much uh, difference there, although it's not a travel ban. It is a uh, an advisory not to travel. Meanwhile, Governor Brown issued Executive Order 2065 following last week's announcement of a statewide freeze to stop the rapid community spread of COVID in Oregon. In light of increasing COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations, the order outlines necessary risk reduction measures designed to limit gatherings and curb human contact. To curb human contact. Here's uh, quoting the governor, I know Oregonians have made tremendous sacrifices throughout this pandemic and that these new temporary restrictions may seem daunting, but we are at a breaking point. If we don't take further action, we risk continued alarming spikes in infections and hospitalizations, and we risk the lives of our neighbors and loved ones. I also know that Oregonians come together in times of need, and we owe it to each other. We come together. (laughs) Apparently, that's the wrong prescription. We owe it to each other to take these measures seriously. It's up to all of us to work together to get this virus under control. So Executive Order 2065 addresses the following details. Limiting at-home and social gatherings as well as faith institutions, undefined here. Limiting the maximum capacity of grocery stores, pharmacies, and retail stores. And one report I read today said grocery stores is one of the uh, places where people most likely contract covid Restricting food and drink establishments to take out only, requiring workplaces to mandate work at home as much as possible, closing certain businesses, including gyms, museums, zoos, indoor recreation facilities, and so on. As with the governor's previous executive orders related to COVID, all of the freeze measures are enforceable by law upon both individuals and businesses. However, the governor is urging voluntary compliance. These measures to stop the spread of COVID are a necessary to give Oregon's uh, the fighting chance to flatten the curve and save lives. Flatten the curve, that is so outdated because when the curve was flattened, they just morphed into some other goal. Um, so this is what the uh, the governor of Oregon is saying. And by the way, this executive order makes Oregon's freeze enforceable by law. So keep that 
in mind. Well, eight months into the pandemic, the Oregon Health Authority is using a system to count COVID-19 tests every day that may undercount the actual number of tests by tens of thousands, undercount the tests, mind you, by tens of thousands, and gives potentially misleading accounts of how much testing is happening in the state. So the percentage of those uh, who have contracted COVID-19 may be significantly lower than what we've been led to believe because apparently the Oregon Health Authority isn't really sure how many tests are available and how many are actually being used. One OHA official also admitted the agency doesn't know how many tests are available each week, how many are being used and how many are left unused. The total number of tests in Oregon is not a number that we have access to, Dr. Tom Jean says. Uh, Dr. Tom is the deputy health officer for the Oregon Health Authority. Most of those tests are in the hands of hospitals and health systems. Well, KGW, who broke the story, they surveyed the four largest health systems in the Portland area, as well as Oregon State University, and they found that they have a total capacity of roughly 48,000 tests per week. Well, Dr. Gene said that he believes the actual number of tests performed in Oregon is closer to 113,000 a week. That's 113,000 um, uh, weekly tests um, uh, that amounts to um, the number of electronic lab reports. Once we've gone through the deduplication and basic data cleaning, he said. So it's a rough estimate, but it's not the most accurate count. Well, you can try to make sense of all of that, but the bottom line is the accurate count. And that's where the confusion comes in. Every day, OHA, which is the Oregon Health Authority, posts a number on its COVID-19 dashboard so the public can see how many tests were done and how many people tested positive or negative. Well, a bit of uh, extra math would allow you to, uh, to calculate the positivity average for each day as well. Well, that's an important metric because it's an indicator of how fast the virus is spreading. A positivity average of 5% or less is often talked about as a statewide goal in Oregon. Um, for one example, again, this is KGW who broke the story. Using the OHA dashboard on the 18th of November, the count of uh, the number of tests from November 8th through the 14th, uh, would uh, would see that 46,170 people were tested in Oregon. And you would be wrong because OHA decided way back in the beginning of the pandemic that it was more important to track how many people were getting tested each day or week, not how many total people were tested. Well, the result is an undercount of tests in the public reporting, although it's unclear how many people are missed. If a person got an initial COVID-19 test in early October, <clears throat> excuse me, and the result was negative, then returned for another test in late November, that person would not be counted in the daily testing numbers as a second time around. Well, the numbers we're reporting um, uh, out are the new numbers being tested, but even that system is failing. So apparently what we don't know is how many people have actually been tested for COVID and what the accurate percentage of those who have been tested uh, is in the state of Oregon, which determines a lot of the decisions that the uh, that the governor is making. Now, is this a, a, a mistake that one should expect could be made under these kinds of circumstances, or is this evidence of inept handling of a pandemic? I'm not really sure what the answer to this is, but the fact that the Oregon Health Authority isn't really sure how many COVID-19 tests are available and how many are actually being used uh, has an impact on virtually everything we think we know about its management and its numbers in the state of Oregon. It's an uh, incredible admission uh, and the confusion. I commend KGW for breaking uh, that story eight months into 
the pandemic. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to taking a look at the lighter side of the news and we'll look forward to uh, uh, to stepping away from some of the more serious news. We'll also anticipate, you know, we've got a holiday season coming up. And while some brazen headlines are suggesting that, uh, you know, Thanksgiving really uh, no longer exists or holiday uh, gatherings, uh, we're not going to have a Christmas and all of that thoroughly misunderstanding the central tenets of uh, Christmas, the the central theme of Thanksgiving and so on, we're all going to have precisely that, uh, or at least the opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving in ways that may be different. But gratitude and Thanksgiving can't be stopped by a pandemic, or for that matter, the lockdown that the governors of Oregon and Washington have imposed on uh, their residents. So we'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow as well as uh, next week. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And I also want to say thank you for your generous uh, giving to the Transitional Youth Radiothon yesterday. We reached our goal, and that would not have happened had it not been for you and your generosity. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.